Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Saturday, October the 8th, 2022. Judging from the newspaper of record or the newspaper that most of us read these days, the New York Times, uh, the news is bad. It always seems to be bad, according to the New York Times, at least. Uh, we're on the verge, perhaps, of some sort of nuclear eruption in um, in the Ukraine, as the Russians are continually humiliated. Meanwhile, we're told by an opinion writer in the Times that Xi Jinping is the second coming of Mao Zedong. We're doing actually a show about Xi uh, with two of his biographers, German biographers, on Monday. COVID continues to kill people, not quite at the rate it did before, but nonetheless, that map is still full of dark red where people are dying unnaturally of COVID. Um, Hurricane Ian killed, apparently, according to the Times, uh, more older adults and, of course, those who are poor and underprivileged in one way or the other, so it only compounded the nastiness about the world. Uh, the, according to the Times, the U.S. medical system, which is really screwed up, uh, is even exploiting Medicare for billions of people. So life is hard. It's miserable, uh, even in universities. It's so miserable, according to the Times, that uh, New York University had to fire one of its professors who were making it rather hard to pass their pre-med courses. Um, there's... Um, uh, a book review uh, in The Times with the title Positivity is Overrated. It's a book of the times for our times. Uh, the name of the book is, appropriately enough, Life is Hard, How Philosophy Can Help Us Find Our Way. And I'm thrilled that we have its author, Kieran Satia, with us, a professor of philosophy at MIT uh, from his home in Darkest Brookline. Satya, welcome. Uh, thanks for yeah, having me. It's uh, great sorry, to be here. I, I called you Satya, but uh, I, I can't call you by your first, uh, your last name. Uh, <laughs> Kieran, uh, life is hard, miserable. Is that the point of your book? Well, it, the point of the book is that uh, the way we're going to make progress on the, our personal woes and also the the woes of the wider world is not going to be by ignoring the ways in life in which life is hard by ignoring infirmity and grief and loss and failure and injustice but by acknowledging them and so it, it's definitely uh, a book in which the the online influencers who tell us to find our bliss or appeal to the power of positive thinking are are in the targets although that, that kind of idea that we should begin with the ideal really has a long history. So also uh, in that tradition, you find Plato in the Republic imagining justice through a utopian city-state rather than thinking, what can we do about injustice here and now? Or you find Aristotle dreaming of the ideal life, you know, the life you could choose if you could have any life at all. And a premise of the book is that the, the way to think about living as well as we can is to, to sort of set aside those ideals and focus on dealing with the adversities we face, living in the world as it is, not the world as we wish it would be. 
course, it's not possible to have a conversation about philosophy without mentioning, you already did, uh, Plato and the Republic. The main figure in Plato's Republic is Socrates, a particularly offensive man who prided himself on, on being so controversial. And in the end, the city got so sick of him that they forced him to commit suicide. They expelled him, which was worse fate than death. One of the intriguing things, uh, Kieran, about your book to me is that um, you're a very different kind of philosopher from Socrates. You teach philosophy at MIT. You're a distinguished philosopher. But your book is profoundly inoffensive. Is that a fair critique? Ah, I, I, I'm not sure if it's a critique, and I'm not sure or why you find it ineff uh, inoffensive. It's not the kind of thing. Um, it's, it's a very... Not only is it a very reassuring book, a very warm book, a very friendly yeah. book, but it presents philosophy as that reassuring friend, that way of dealing with adversity. I think it's certainly true that my approach to life's difficulties is, is to, to go for com compassion with how hard it is to uh, do everything one wishes one could do or or make as much of a difference as one as one would like to. So when I talk about injustice, I think I'm frank about the injustice of the world, but also realistic about how hard it is for people in dealing with the difficulties in their own lives to really make a substantial difference. So yeah, it's not a book that says, uh, here's how you can radically change your life uh, and make a kind of revolutionary alteration in, in everything you're doing. It's a book about trying to figure out how to cope better with the difficulties in your life and how to make incremental changes that might make your life better and the life of people around you better. So yeah, I think consolation is definitely the, the mode I gravitate towards rather than uh, you know, revolution. The philosopher who comes to mind when I was reading your book is Montaigne, the essayist. It's a book it's not really formal philosophy. It's certainly not Hegel or Kant or something. It's it's very easy to read and very enjoyable and very and 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 I think it's going to be a very successful book. Um, was Montaigne an inspiration? That form of essay in which he was able to write about the world and his suffering and his attitude to the world in an accessible way. It's I mean, I, I love, I'm mean, flattered by the comparison. It's definitely true that I, I there was a, there's a wonderful essay by a, um, a literary critic, Colin Burrow, about this divergence in forms of essay in which on one side he has Montaigne writing philosophical essays that are personal but exploratory. And on the other side, the argumentative attempt at sort of rigor and precision of Descartes, who was Montaigne's contemporary. And one thing I hope the book begins to do, or at least it attempts to do, is to try to break down that division a little bit. So there are arguments in the book, and I'm trained as a professional philosopher. That's my, my day job. But a lot of what happens in the book is more essayistic in the style of Montaigne. So some of it is very personal. Some of it is, when not personal, it's sort of eclectic in drawing on literature, history, comedy, social science sort of whatever seems pertinent and not really respecting sort of genre or disciplinary boundaries. So I, I would love it, it to be not exactly in the tradition of Montaigne, but to, to some extent overcoming the division between the, the philosophers who are 
Cartesians coming up with their rigorous proofs and the philosophers like Montaigne who are more experiential and in personal in their approach to, to life's hardships. In a way, is it a work of philosophy in a post-philosophical age, or at least in an age where philosophers aren't very important? Their footnotes and philosophy <laughs> departments are barely funded, and most kids wouldn't even, you know, most parents, if their kids tell them they're grad, they're, they're majoring <laughs> in philosophy, would have a stroke. Uh, I mean, that remain, that is true. There's a lot to say about that. I mean, one thing is that in the, the decline in humanities enrollments, which is a, a feature of higher education at the moment, philosophy has been something of an outlier and that enrollments really haven't declined so much. There is There remains interest. And my sense is that there is a, there is a kind of demand for philosophical writing in uh, the wider public outside of academia for serious reflection on how to live. Uh, and there's increasingly a kind of supply. That's to say there are more and more philosophers like me who are academics who think uh, I should try to communicate some of what's of value in what I do to a non-academic audience. So it's not exactly post-philosophical. I think one way I would put it is that I would like to expand philosopher's sense of what counts as philosophical. So to to be more open to the idea that a certain kind of thick description, a certain kind of uh, sort of cr creative writing in which you're attempting to capture an experience is continuous with philosophical reflection on how to live. And so it, yeah, it's not post-philosophical, but maybe maybe a little bit less well, disciplinary. Philosophical. Uh, I mentioned Montaigne. Another Frenchman, or at least half Frenchman, who comes to mind is, um, of course, Rousseau, who focused on innocence and the child um, in somehow knowing more than adults. There seems to be a Rousseauan element to contemporary philosophy. We had a, one of your philosophical colleagues on the yeah. show, Scott Hershowitz, Nasty, Brutish and Short Adventures in Philosophy with My Kids. I think the point that Hershowitz is making, even if he might not acknowledge this, I can say it since he's not here to defend himself. <laughs> and maybe the point you're making also in your book is that Actually, not being a philosopher, being a child, being a sufferer enables you to see philosophical issues much more clearly, much more appropriately than professional philosophers. Do you think there's some truth to that? Is, is Rousseau lurking here, as he always does, that horrible lurker? <laughs> I, mean, I think there's, there's real truth in, the, in, the, in, in one of the threads in what you just said, which is that people have to be trained out of asking philosophical questions, that there's a certain kind of um, openness to asking why and wondering that uh, you, you get suppressed uh, and that it, it's possible and useful to, to recover later on. A book in this vein, which I just can't resist recommending, is a really wonderful book by a philosopher, Gareth Matthews, called Dialogues with Children, in which mm. I'm sure Scott mentions it, actually, but he he went into schools and and did philosophy with, I think, sort of 10-year-olds. And, you know, it's just a very beautiful and inspiring book. So um, I think, yes, some recovery recovery of naivety maybe is, is useful in, in thinking about how professional philosophy can engage with life. I mean, for me, it, it came out something in something like this way, that I realized I was having conversations with friends that were about how to live. And they were about things like, I'm ill, what should I hope for? I mean, it, you know, it's gonna be bad, but 
what should I do about it? Or and, you are, quite... and, and the book itself is quite um, confessional in terms of your own personal illness. Yeah, right. So it, yeah, exactly. So when I, you know, how am I going to, I have a chronic pain condition. I have chronic pelvic pain, which was, which I've had since I was 27. And I talk about it in the book. And the, the question is, well, okay, well, given that my life is going to involve a considerable amount of physical pain, what kind of life should I be aiming for? And the questions, the conversations I had with friends about how to live with about, you know, I got fired from my job or my marriage isn't going well, or I really wanted to get this job, but I haven't. And those are questions about how to live sort of concrete questions that are at some distance often from the kinds of questions that philosophers like me who work in ethics, moral philosophy ask. And there was a kind of bridging of, of the, the concrete texture of people's reflection on how to live and philosophical theory that, that I wanted to engage in. And as you say, one path to that was just being open about my own experience and sort of treating myself as a, a case study of uh, hardship in which there was an opportunity to philosophize yeah. about pain. I mean, you've even wrote a book about your previous book was Midlife, uh, a Philosophical Guide, which is about midlife crises. So, yeah, that's right. So, my, my I like to joke that my yeah, my last book was about having a having a midlife crisis, and this one is more personal, which which is true. I think the the midlife yeah, crisis book is a, a little actually. yeah, thank you. It's a little bit tongue in cheek that book, and this I think there's a this is it has some jokes in it. Life is hard, and there's some irony, but it is a it's a more sober book in some ways. Uh, I mean, I started writing it before the pandemic, but the pandemic definitely had an impact on my sense of... Uh, yeah, of Kieran, preference. I have to admit, I, I'm really not convinced by this miserable quality to, to, to your perception <laughs> of the world. Um, the, uh, the, the Times headline, as I said, is po positivity is overrated. I, I wonder whether it's, you know, we seem to live in the age of perceived adversity. Everyone always talks about, oh, the uniqueness of COVID. Oh, we live in terrible times, blah, blah, blah. I, I think, if anything, adversity or perceived adversity is overrated. I, I don't want to get back into the debate about, you know, whether we live in the best or the worst of times. But there seems to be, the zeitgeist seems to be one of general miserableness. Anytime there's any bad news, people exaggerate it. Whenever there's good news, people dress it up as bad news. Isn't there some truth to that, particularly with COVID? I mean, you and I are still alive. Okay, it wasn't good if you die. But for the most part, most of us survived. So why do we have this tendency to make everything so miserable these days? I think I do see things a little differently than that. I mean, in the specifics of COVID, the thing that, that strikes me as concerning is apart from the millions of people who've died, there's the, the rate of long COVID is you know, unknown, maybe 20%, maybe 40%. So we're probably dealing with, you know, tens of millions of people dealing with serious chronic health conditions over the next few decades. And that I think is just a fact. So um, I, I don't think it's about dwelling on the negative things. For me, it's about the way in which it, setting them aside or immediately shifting into a mode of, uh, well, but there are also good things or here's, here's a way to approach, here's, here's advice for solving this problem can be a, a form of disavowal. It can be a way of, of not really a kind of failure of compassion, not to take in and dwell in people's suffering and adversity. And I think there's a kind of consolation, especially one-on-one, -on -one, in uh, being willing to just sit with someone's difficulties and not immediately try to solve them. And I can see how that could go awry, especially if 
what you're doing is just taking some global phenomenon and saying, let's just sit with the difficulty rather than rather than try to solve it. But I think being real, actually taking in the facts of the difficulty is a necessary precursor to to trying to solve it. And we are, I think, in, in COVID at a time when, uh, you know, the, the facts about how badly it's going right now in terms of public health are not significantly less bad than they were at points when people thought that various public health measures like masking were, were uh, you know, strongly advisable. So either we were, we were wrong then or we're wrong now. And I think we have to kind of ask those kind of questions. Uh, when you were talking about Montaigne, you offered two traditions of philosophy, the essayist like Montaigne, the humanist, and then the more formal, analytical, Descartes, Cartesian path. But there seems to be another uh, sort of, I don't know, a cleavage, if that's the right word, of traditions. On the one hand, there's yours, this focus on suffering, on consolation. Um, and then the perhaps the, the Machiavellian one. I've, I've always been a big admirer, and whether you <laughs> would even consider Machiavelli as a philosopher, some people no, wouldn't. Yeah, yeah. Um, some people just think of him as the devil. But Machiavelli famously said, uh, fortune favors the brave. And that republican tradition which you write about Nietzsche in the book of course Nietzsche was very intrigued with although never could quite come to grips with what would you make of um that Machiavellian idea that fortune favors the brave that we make our own histories uh, in a civic manner and that if we focus on failure if we focus on suffering um, we're falling into perhaps the, the Nietzschean trap. Well, I mean, I think there's a, 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 a there's a possibility of wishful thinking in the idea that you know we we make our own make our own uh, fates. But well, I think you that... have, Kieran. You've gone from growing up in Hull to becoming a full professor of philosophy uh, at MIT, one of the most distinguished universities in the world. There was no luck involved in that. There was certainly an enormous amount of luck involved in that. I mean, I went on the job market in philosophy in 2001 uh, when the number of jobs was about three times as many as it is now. There are students who are at, at least as talented as I was uh, uh, yeah, going on that, the job market you're, you're, now. Who, I don't believe no. you mean that. Anyway, go oh, on. I certainly, I mean, I there are students who, my students who you know, would certainly have got good jobs. Well, would you give up your job to one of those students now? Uh, no, I think that's a different question, but, um, but, uh, I certainly think they, they don't, they're not less deserving of a, of a good job than I was. Um, but I think, so, I think so life is a lottery for you in philosophical terms. You just happen to get lucky. Um, and you went from Hull to MIT and millions of others could have done the same thing. Uh, that seems like a simplification um, but I, I just wouldn't want to de deny that some serious doses of good fortune were involved in. But, but coming in back, my, okay, I, 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 maybe I'm over-personalizing this, but um, coming back to the Machiavellian yeah. notion of the importance of fortune, it seems as if the heart of your philosophy, it's the reverse of Machiavelli, is misfortune. And in an odd way, you seem to be suggesting that misfortune favors the brave. <laughs> well, I think one thing that to stress is that my when I say think about failure, the point of dwelling on failure is not sort of lugubrious. The point precisely is that uh, we can change how we relate to our lives in a way that will uh, 
minimize the the threat of failure. So part of what I want to do is diagnose the ways in which we allow ourselves to be judged by certain kinds of single overarching linear narratives on which we, we, we're defined by a project, often a, a career project or a, a project of financial success in which failure sort of comes to be the, the measure of our value and that we don't have to see ourselves that way and we can resist seeing ourselves that way. So we can, in fact, take some control over it. But in cases like that, I do think it's also important to recognize that individually deciding I'm going to opt out of this system of valuing myself by financial success it can go so far, but when you're in a society well, in which no one mentioned these... financial success here. I'm not suggesting that your success is because you earn a lot of money at MIT. Right, but I, I, uh, I was just talking about the, the argument in the book that uh, that many people do value themselves by financial success, and that's a case where my re reaction to it is not let's dwell on our failures. It's let's try to change both how we see ourselves and how society is structured so that we're not vulnerable or as vulnerable to failure in this way. So I don't think my attitude to failure is, is sort of passive or accepting. And in fact, one of the things I'm critical of in the book is the stoic idea that we should simply accept and be uh, complete, sort of um, completely forgiving of the ways in which life is difficult, uh, yeah, problematic, and out of our this? control. Um of the sort of the chicness now of, of stoicism. I mean, you mentioned that Diogenes, uh, the cynic, I, I guess he's a cynic rather than a, a stoic, but there seems to be a great fashion for stoicism these days. Uh, lots of very, very popular best-selling books. I've had some of these people on my show. They get on my nerves, yeah. but everybody gets on my nerves. That's probably my problem. <laughs> um, yeah. What do you make of the, the fashionability of, of stoicism and, and indeed cynicism, these post- Athenian post-Aristotelian traditions. I mean, I think there's some there's real value in the Stoic idea of not getting too obsessed with trying to change what you can't change. But I'm I'm very skeptical of of this the sort of Stoic the simple Stoic idea that by sim, that we should simply detach ourselves emotionally from what we can't control, and thereby even in the worst conditions secure a kind of perfect happiness. So the, the emblem of this for me is Epictetus, um, Greek Stoic, who was himself enslaved. And one of his paradigm applications of Stoicism was to reconcile himself to slavery. And I think I don't think we should uh, be encouraging people who are in dire conditions of that kind to reconcile themselves to it. And part of what I think is problematic about the contemporary reanimation of Stoicism is that it people now sort of throw away the metaphysics of Stoicism. So the actual ancient Stoics had a metaphysical view of the universe as God's mind, God's reason. It was Zeus. And they thought, well, the universe is fundamentally rational. So whenever anything is, is, seems bad, it must be part of God's plan and it's all going to work out for the best. And if you think that, I can see why you might say, let's just accept whatever happens. I think there's a the idea that you can, you know, there's a having your cake and eating it quality to contemporary stoicism where people want to be able to reconcile themselves to things, but they don't actually believe this cosmological picture that the ancient stoics had. You have a, one of the things on your on your website is a bookshelf uh, talking about the books you're reading. 
one caught my eye, Megan O'Glebian's uh, God, Human, Animal, Machine. I think it's a really good book, but it, and I've tried to actually get her on the show. She never responds. Um, I think she's a, a difficult character. Um, she seems in that book, and I, and I would recommend all, uh, the audience, God, Human, Animal, Machine, to read it. It seems to be an attempt to slip religion back in the back door make it more central, or at least it's a book with a, I don't know, someone who, who's never quite got over religion, struggling with it. What's the role of religion or the absence of religion, traditional monotheistic faith in your book? Because um, the book is called Life is Hard, How Philosophy Can Help Us Find Our Way. It could equally be Life is Hard, How Religion or How God Could Help Us Find Our Way. What's your attitude uh, firstly, I, I'm curious what you think of the Oglebian book. And secondly, um, how does religion fit or not fit in? Because a lot of your conclusions on consolation and love and misfortune, that they seem to be very Christian. That's interesting. I mean, I, I, I like the I haven't finished the Giblin book. I'm really enjoying it so far. I definitely, there's a thread in it, which is about the the sort of tacit role of quasi-religious ideas and a whole bunch of allegedly secular ways of thinking about the mind and the and the world. Uh, but I haven't, I don't know where she ends up, but um, so- I don't so, think she ends up anywhere, that's the problem. I see, well, it's, um, I mean, in general, I think the, so I'm not myself religious, but I have a kind of, um, you know, I, I sometimes say if if I, I'm a wannabe secular Jew. Like if if there was going to be a religion that I would be part of, it would be it would be a, a being Jewish, but not actually believing in in any of the. Well, that's the, quite the a confession people. from an Anglo Indian American. <laughs> well, yeah, my wife now, is Jewish. I so an ounce of Jewish blood in you. No, it's a vicarious uh, thing through my, my 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 wife is Jewish, and so I've been to I've been more to to. Uh, Jewish temples than any other kind of uh, religious um, event in my life. But um, no, I, I think, so there is a way in which God offers consolation or, or certain kinds of religious views can offer consolation. I think it's easy to overstate that. So I begin the book by talking about the book of Job and the fact that whatever, mm. the, it's, it's complicated, but whatever the lesson of the book of Job is, it seems to be that Job is not wrong, that he's suffering, that he's, he's the su subject of undeserved suffering and that we, he shouldn't be reconciled to that. There should be a certain kind of compassionate fury about that. So, I, and I think in the... He's, but it, Job it, isn't in fashion these days in religious circles. It's more of a sort of a compassionate, softer Christianity, isn't it? I don't know. I mean, I'm not... Yeah, I don't uh, have a sense of what the, what the, mm. the uh, sort of... Um, fashions are in contemporary Christian religion. Okay, I mean, my... Um, in progressive circles i mean obviously on, on, amongst conservatives it's slightly different yeah um i mean I, I i broadly i think that what i want to do in the book is to think through how that how far there can be secular versions of atheistical versions of some of the consolations not all of them that religion gives us i think mortality is going to be a sticking point for um for me in a way that certain kinds of religious traditions won't make it. But yeah, the, towards the end of the book, I, I have a chapter about absurdity and meaning in which I acknowledge that there's a way in which the question of what attitude one should take to human suffering and injustice and life as a whole 
has a, a kind of off-the-shelf answer for many religious traditions or the assurance that there's some kind of answer to it. And it's a real question when you're not you know, participating in one of those traditions, whether you can find any kind of credible answer. And I'm, I'm optimistic that there could be kind of spiritual consolations that are consistent with being atheistic, entirely secular, but I think they're highly precarious. I don't think there's any, there's, that we're ever gonna get the kinds of assurance that you might get from religion. Although having said that, I think a lot of religious people that I know, again, I'm thinking of like Jewish friends, have a very, like assurance is not the word for their relationship to, to religious consolation. They, Although, Kieran, uh, you don't probably need me to tell you this, uh, Bro Brooklyn and Cambridge Jews are not necessarily typical of most Jews, I think. Uh, yeah, I, I, I mean, I, you know, I have Israeli friends too, and I lived in Pittsburgh for a long time, which oh, also okay. has a big Jewish community. <laughs> but um, yeah. Um, what about the politics of all this? I, I mean, you might claim to be a philosopher as opposed to being political. Socrates, of course, was extremely political. I wonder whether this tendency towards cynicism or stoicism is a way of fleeing from politics. I've got a book coming up in a couple of months with the political thinker Richard Haas, The Bill of Obligations, The Ten Habits of Good Citizens, which, which is all about obligations, about what society requires of us. I guess in a way this comes back to Machiavelli and his harder kind of civic republicanism. Mm -hmm. Do you think there's a danger with your kind of book, with its focus on suffering, life is hard, it turns us away from politics, away from obligation, away from our civic responsibilities and, and, and turns us inward and focuses on the self and our suffering? Well, I, I can see that being a, a, a kind of threat in a certain kind of stoicism. But as I said, it's a, one of, that's one of the ways in which I'm, I'm sort of resistant to stoicism is that it threatens to reconcile us to things that we shouldn't be reconciled to. So, I mean, the way the book, my book is structured is it begins with, you know, infirmities of the body, chronic pain, loneliness and personal failure. But there's a chapter on injustice, which is precisely about the ways in which trying to live one's own life well, trying to live as you should, is not just about treating yourself as you should, but about responding as you should to other people and society around you. So I think, it, in a way, I think a lot of philosophical self-help is, uh, you know, to put it bluntly, too selfish, and that the idea of a good life has to be the idea of a life in which a certain kind of responsibility for justice plays a central role. And so, yeah, I, I actually think that uh, thinking about the ways in which one's enmeshed in, a, in patterns of injustice is, is part of, uh, and how to, what one's obligations are to do something about that is part of living a decent human life. So, I, I, yeah, I resist the idea that there's a, a kind of real division there between justice on the one hand or morality and and self-interest so how does philosophy or how could philosophy or how should philosophy help us find our political way well one one way to kind of think about this is is uh, you know there's a, a lot of uh, interest these days in this fashionable idea of effective altruism and effective altruists have done a lot of good in getting people to give to charities that you know distribute malaria nets. And that is great. But I think there's a way in which I think there's a need to, to shift from a paradigm on which the we're thinking of those of us who are relatively affluent and well off as I am, 
as engaged in a kind of altruistic concern for those in need to a focus on what the political theorist Iris Marion Young calls structural injustice and one's involvement in it. So I think many of the ways in which we have obligations to make a difference are not about altruistic engagement. They're about our collective involvement in injustice. So for me, climate change is the paradigm of this, where the, 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 the primary issue is not, well, let's help the future generations who might be in need. It's that Broadly speaking, the US and Europe um, have collectively contributed a huge amount to a problem that they will that will be predominantly uh, affect people in Asia and Africa who did very little to cause it. And causing harm to other people for one's own benefit is sort of the paradigm of injustice. And that's an injustice in which we're complicit. And the question I think philosophy can help illuminate there is, okay, these are collective actions. No one individually, or at least I didn't individually do a huge amount to contribute to, to climate change, but what can I do about it? And I think focusing on one's involvement in structures rather than say your individual carbon footprint, I mean, it's fine, reduce your individual carbon footprint, but the real issue is the, the systems in which you're embedded that uh, are responsible for this. So, you know, part of the, you know, it's, it's a kind of old slogan, you know, think global, act local, but I think there's real, that there's a kind of philosophical heft to that, that collective action is the is going to have to be the solution to these collectively caused problems. And the question is, where can you engage in it? Voting and so on is one thing, but there are often local venues for collective action. So I've been involved in this at, at MIT, where it's a small institution, small numbers of people can make a difference, but it is it, it's sort of relatively impactful. And that's a sort of strategy for thinking about what it would mean to, to meet one's obligations in a, in a case like this. You mentioned MIT. You teach philosophy at MIT. Most people, I don't think, think philosophy when they think MIT. Massachusetts Institute of Technology is probably still the world's leading university when it comes to educating technologists of one kind or another. Um, we did a show, uh, an interesting show, um, few months ago with Andrew Hodges, who was the biographer of uh, Alan Turing, who sort of the, the British pioneer of artificial intelligence. Um, Hodges even wrote a book, Turing, in the Great Philosophers series. Um, how does technology play in your life is hard universe, uh, particularly given the way in which Turing and, and the many scientists and technologists at um, places like MIT are inventing algorithms which compete with humans in terms of intelligence and perhaps even morality. That is a, the, a very good, hard, big question. Uh, so the, this is currently a, a kind of vexed topic at MIT. There's this new college of computing and one of its professed missions is to devote attention to the social and ethical dimensions of computing in a way that I, I take it the hope is to uh, pre prevent the current generation of MIT students from, you know, further destroying democracy. And uh, there, you know, there's also initiatives on things like the future of work. So I, I don't think I have a kind of general answer to this, except that I, I think these are cases where I, th I think there's good work to be done in teaching students at MIT about the social and moral dimensions of what they're doing. But often it, 
the kinds of changes that are required here are, are structural and regulative. And they're not, you know, just having, as it were, nice, conscientious people working for Facebook or, or Google is not really going to cut it. And so I, what we are part of the difficulty of the situation is that technology is moving very fast and regulation is very slow. And we, we sort of pretty urgently need to, to start thinking about how the, the kind of deployment of algorithms and you know, artificial intelligence are, are regulated to try and preemptively deal with some of the threats that we can see coming. And well, what do you tell your students if they put up their hand and say, well, Professor, should, you know, I, I believe in your version of the world, but should I go and work at Google or Facebook? Should they? I mean, are these people destroying the world? That is, uh, well, I don't think I could say in any given case, uh, no, you shouldn't do that. But part, I, mean, I think that's partly because usually the, partic the details of the particular case, the devil is in the details. Like, what, what are you going to do at Google? And what are you, how are you going to approach it? And what are your other options? Well, I mean, the reason so I ask this is because I could imagine a senior exec or a programmer at Google or Facebook, they'd pick up your book, Life is Hard, How Philosophy Can Help Us Find Our Way. And in a way, it would make them feel really good about themselves. And isn't this the mm -hmm. problem, not with your book, but with um, one way of looking at the world is that you can compartmentalize uh, what one's like, ethically compartmentalize one's life. So you can read Life is Hard and your book will probably do well on the campuses of Google or Facebook. You might even get invited in to speak to them. And yet, they continue to wreck the world. Well, I, I have to say it's early in the book's life, uh, but it's a first for someone to say that that it's going to make you feel good about yourself. So, uh, but it's going to make you I, feel I, good about your suffering. I, 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 yeah, I, I don't know if I would put it that way, but but uh, maybe um, I'm being unkind. I apologize. No, no, I I just think it's sort of more that there's a you know coping and finding good things in one's life while while acknowledging it. I mean, I do. Well, there's virtue I, in suffering. It's the reverse of, of Machiavelli then. That might be, there may be some truth in that. I mean, I don't, uh, I, I don't know what it would, what it would be like if, if executives at Google read it. I mean, I don't, as I said, I don't explicitly talk about um, the, the sort of threats from, from, you know, computing and technology, but in the one case where I do have an extended discussion of, of, what would have been the relevant career decision for MIT students 30 years ago, and still to some extent is, namely, am I going to go and work for BP? Um, I think my discussion of that would not be something that if you if you work for BP now, you'd think this really makes me feel good about myself. Um, and so, yeah, I think if you have the imagination to to project from the, the kind of cases I do talk about at length, namely the, the way in which, the, you know, uh, fossil fuel companies have have been complicit in uh, climate denial and the ways in which they have developed business models that are in, predicated on enormous and unsustainable human destruction and environmental destruction. If, if you think of that as a case study in in what as an MIT grad you might do with your life and how it might look 30 years later, with a little imagination, you might be able to think about the kind of career choices you're making as an MIT grad now or if you're working for google what you're part of so yeah I, I think i don't join the dots in the book but it, that's a point in which i think going back to the the question you started with 
in a way, it, it's a non non revolutionary book, but part of what comes out of the the critique of how oh, knocking my microphone over part of what comes out of the critique of how um, climate change has evolved into the the kind of cataclysm it is is a structural critique of how society operates. And I suppose there's a kind of, you can imagine a sequel on which the, that political critique of capitalism was made more overt than I make it in the book. Um, so yeah, it's sort of left as subtext. Is, is that a kind of a, a Sisyphean quality to teaching philosophy at MIT? Um, well, I think there's a Sisyphean quality to teaching anything anywhere, which is that you you have this group of students and you you do your best and they vanish and you really you you almost never see any of them ever again and then you're like okay, let's do it over again. So um, th there is some of that. I think the students have the uh, when I came to MIT, I think which was 2014, it had a reputation for being very apolitical. I think the student body was not very politicized. I think that has changed in the time I've been there. So I think there's much more receptiveness to sort of social and political thinking among the undergrads than there was at that point. And that's partly just a result of pol domestic political changes. I mean, I think, you know, for a lot of students when say um, visas for uh, people from Muslim, predominantly Muslim countries became a problem, this was affecting their friends at MIT in a way that made it hard to, to think of oneself as, as just a scientist who was politically neutral. Uh, and lots of other things, you know, science has become politicized in a way that it wasn't so much uh, before 2008, say. And so I, I think there is more receptiveness among the students to this than, than ever before. But it's true that, that the standard ambition of an MIT undergrad is to be Mark Zuckerberg, I suppose. So, so that, well, you know, I hope. I mean, yeah. <laughs> maybe Mark Zuckerberg before he became Mark Zuckerberg. A couple more questions. You've been very, very, uh, very good on here, on Kieran, in terms of dealing with these unpleasant questions. Um, <laughs> Thank you. Uh, you've mentioned the environment a lot. We've done so many shows on it. Um, and I was thinking also in terms of your book, another British philosopher who maybe represents a very different tradition is John Gray, mm. who seems to be focused on a post-human world. Um, what do you make of that kind of philosophical tradition, a, a post-speciesism philosophy? Do you think um, it goes with a concern about our destruction of the planet and of other species and ultimately probably of our own? Another great question and a kind of another big one that I think I can sort of I can nail my flag to the mast and say I, I, I am in those terms. I am a, a humanist and I think it's perfectly appropriate for humanity to be deeply attached to the survival of humanity, although with a certain ambivalence, since I think it's mere survival is not much to hope for. The question is, is can we hope for a human future that's actually something we can affirm? But, yeah, my vision of the world is very, uh, very much human centered and I don't feel, find a great consolation in the thought of the you know the happy cockroaches flourishing after after we've destroyed ourselves and final question on on women uh, we haven't talked about women um, of course the founder of software was uh, Ada Lovelace although women haven't been as much involved in technology as perhaps they should is there a particular reading of gender in life is hard is 
life as hard for men as it is for women. We had the British philosopher or political theorist uh, Richard Reeves on the show at the beginning of the week, whose new book uh, of Boys and Men suggests that life is much harder these days for boys and men than it is for girls and women. Um, what's the, the gendered element, if, if there is one, to your argument? I mean, the short answer is that gender isn't something that I explicitly talk about uh, uh, in the, uh, well, a great deal in the book. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I would be surprised if, the, if my sense of the facts bore out the, the hypothesis that, that men uh, have it harder than women right now, but uh, that's not something I really take up in, in the well, book. Well, his argument is a quantitative one, that women are much more successful in universities, doing better, boys are struggling with their mental health and so on and so forth. So he, it, it's, it's, it's a quantitative argument. Yeah. Well, so I don't know. I don't know what, you know. Right. What, well, you the, probably the see it, uh, even at MIT. I'm assuming you're seeing more and more smart female students. Well, MIT has been roughly 50 50 uh, male female undergrads mm. for, for a long time. I don't know. Well, sure yeah. I, I mean, it, do you think that men and women might read your book, Life is Hard How Philosophy Can Help Us Find Our Way Differently? I, I think I'm not. Uh, prone to generalize about men and women as such in that way. So I, I don't know. Uh, I, I would, I wouldn't expect that there's any particularly generalizable kind of contrast along gender lines. Although I'm sure particular men and women have different experiences that, that are relevant to their experience of hardship in which gender has played a role. And I'm sure that must color how people think about my experience, which is the experience of someone who's, you know, um, uh, you know, mixed race person from England living in America with a, you know, as you said, a, a cushy job and, you know, uh, and a man. So I, I'm sure that the limitations of my perspective come out in the book in all kinds of ways. I'm beginning to realize, I think, Kieran, why you wrote your book, Life is Hard. I see a big uh, baseball stadium behind you. I know you <laughs> you wrote uh, an essay, Going Deep Baseball and Philosophy. I assume you're a Red Sox fan. They had a miserable year. Do you think uh, Red Sox fans... Uh, are better philosophers, make better philosophers than other fans, especially Boston uh, sports fans. I'm, I'm actually not a Red Sox. I'm a, I lived, I was in, which is even more brutal. I mean, yeah, I think it's true. Oh, is that, that the, the pirate stadium behind you? It is. Yeah. Yeah. That's Forbes field from um, 1960. That was when, when the pirates won the world series. So, uh, and then the background, I don't, I don't know how to point on my camera. The building in the background is the Cathedral of Learning, which is the the giant Gothic skyscraper at the University of Pittsburgh, which where I used to teach. So that was where the philosophy department was. Um, well, you know, I, I I do think there's a certain kind of uh, experience of failure that you get from from dwelling in, in from being a baseball fan, especially of a team like the Pirates, that I'm sure has colored my my perception of the world. Although. Uh, actually, the essay you just mentioned sort of resists the idea that baseball is all about failure. Although in the book, I, I talk about some pretty cataclysmic cases of failure, mm. like Ralph Branca giving up the, the shot heard around the world as sort of paradigmatic cases of failure that are useful to when, when your whole life comes to be defined by a, a kind mm. of signal failure as useful case studies to think through about how, how to think about our lives in ways that makes that that kind of failure less um, less threatening. So perhaps fans of the Dodgers or the Yankees or Manchester City or Liverpool, they make worse philosophers than fans of 
the Pittsburgh Pirates. Well, I want to really thank you, Kieran. Uh, you've been very generous with your time. Too generous, really. Um, what else, uh, in, in addition to the new book, which I strongly suggest, a, a very, um, very, very uh, intriguing book, very controversial in its own way, Life is Hard, How Philosophy Can Help Us Find Our Way. I think it's going to be one of the bestsellers of the year. What else are you reading in addition to the, the O'Geelan o, o book? I well, so this is it's a, I, you told me you were going to ask this question. And the, the amazing thing is that that what I had two books picked out. One was that book because something yeah. that I'm reading that I was well, reading. It's, it's on your bookshelf. It's on yeah, the I bookshelf. Like that feature on your website. Um, it's, nice. the, it's mostly there because I will I forget what I've read. And I think I need to I need it a, is a really, really, really good book. It is, uh, yeah. But it also leaves perhaps as any good book, it leaves more questions than answers. That's I mean, that's part of why I liked it was that I think if you're going to have an introduction to actually quite hard questions in philosophy of mind and metaphysics. Mm. Um, it's very engaging and, and I think, yeah, it leads people to think for, for themselves. And certainly in tech and AI, I mean, for you yes. as an MIT person, it must right. be particularly interesting. Yeah, I think it's a really good book, actually. The other one I was going to mention is this book by Jesse Ball, who's a novelist. Uh, I've not read any of his novels, but he has a memoir out called Auto Portrait, which was apparently written in one day in one paragraph. And it just consists of a bunch of observations. Like I think the first sentence is, oh, actually, I can't remember. I, I, I don't know how to ride a horse. And it, it gradually, as you go through, little narratives appear and personal things come out. But it never quite makes sense or coalesces. And I, there was something beautiful about that book. And I really, I recommend that too.